Hey everybody, this is J.P. Ross back for another In The Seam podcast. Our podcast is named In The Seam because we believe that the little uh, tidbits of wisdom don't happen necessarily in the mainstream of life. They happen in these little seams and eddies and currents, side currents. And uh, as a fly angler, you'll you'll be able to relate to this because that's usually what, what those little seams are what you're looking for. So that's what In The Seam Podcast is all about. Today's guest is Bob Duport. Bob is a, um, I met Bob as a guide at the Hungry Trout up in Wilmington, New York, but he also uh, has his own guiding business and he's going to talk about that. And he is from Maine. And if you are familiar with guiding, getting your guidings, uh, your guiding license, getting a, a Getting licensed in Maine is, is a lot more difficult than many other states. So Maine guides are very well respected. I will tell you a little bit of a story, though, um, in regards to meeting Bob. And uh, I guess how some of these things correlate, and it's odd how they correlate, but um, Bob talks about how he met me with my father when um, we went up to the Hungry Trout up in Wilmington. And... At the time, my dad pulled in with me, and he had just purchased a, a 911 Porsche. And there's a there's a there's a story to this, because um, I think there's a stigma to you know people that have these types of cars. So anyway, my father, um, he was he is an entrepreneur. He was a he was a businessman. Did a lot of different things. But when he started out, he started working at a laundry service. And, um, and as if I recall, he started the third shift. He was a third shift supervisor. He eventually worked his way up, um, uh, kind of up the ladder. It was a local company and he knew the family and, uh, he worked his way up to vice president. And when he finally got up that high up into the corporate ladder, um, he tells me about how there was, there was just a lot of typical horse shit that you would expect from uh from you know bigger businesses and um and kind of like trickery and uh betrayal um and the things that you deal with as people climb the ladder i'm going to talk about this a little bit more in another podcast there's actually uh a, a chinese story about as the monkey climbs the ladder more of his ass you can see but this is funny and this is interesting because uh I've, I've actually experienced this also in regards to as I have um, kind of moved up in some different places or have begun to experience different people in, in organizations. This is across the board, whether they're nonprofit, for-profit, um, academics or whatever. But as you, as you kind of move up, sometimes the, the leadership and the, and the character traits that, of these people are somewhat questionable. So anyway, my father quit. Uh, he told them to, well, I think he respectfully quit, but in, in his mind, he, he told them to take a shit. And in doing so, he started another business. And um, it was actually in um, medical, and it was a medical laboratory. And he built that laboratory up, 
and took a lot of market share from a big corporation uh, locally. And that was kind of his whole plan, is he was going to take market share and then uh, he was going to sell it, and that's what he did. And when he sold it, they said to him, you are um, pretty valuable and we want you to come on board with us. And he became a vice president at that company that he um, sold his business to. When he did that, he bought a new 911 Porsche, and that was a that was a dream of his. And he did it, and the two of us drove up to go fishing up in Lake Placid, up near Lake Placid. And that's where I met Bob Duport, and that's where this podcast starts, is talking about that and talking about what Bob does. I think this is a great podcast because Bob touches upon something that is important to me that I didn't realize I uh, is real, which is... Um, you can get you can be uncomfortable when you're outside in the woods and that's okay and i thought that maybe at some point everyone gets comfortable with that and bob and i talk about that um so this uncomfortableness um is kind of like fear actually it is fear bob and i talk about this and we talk about when you really go deep into the woods there's uh, I think as you get older and you mature, you're like, you know, what the hell? I got better tell somebody where I am. And he's he admitted that he's done it so much, but he still, you know, he still feels it. He still feels this uncomfortableness, but he's more and more comfortable with it. But it exists. It was great to hear because um, I feel it too. And I thought that maybe there was something wrong with me, but I think it's just real. So anyway, here's my interview with Bob Duport. Enjoy. Yeah. So, what were, you, what were you out having fun again today? My God, I've been like following some of your stuff. It's I'm living vicariously through you. It's, you yeah, I had a wonderful day. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, you know I've only been home a couple of days, and I'm just getting you know this last uh, just getting settled in, and this time of year, I'm I'm really trying to. Uh, just get ready for winter, but it uh, this year I decided I was gonna. As soon as I get home, do some uh, do some grouse hunting, and I had a fantastic day today with a friend of mine. Uh, so that was great. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, it's been it's been wonderful since I got home. We've had this warm weather, which hasn't been great for deer hunting, but it's been great for grouse. Uh, has it been has it been good been it's been good for for wing shooting yes yeah i mean i limited it out today and i haven't done that in a long time on grouse wow that's awesome so yeah yeah saw a lot of birds today yeah main in good shape this year i was joking around with some people saying that you know the that the maple the maple trees (laughs) dropped all their leaves and now they're starting to bud again yeah. Isn't yeah. it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? It's a hell of a fall. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're dry. Yeah. We're dry. We're dry I, I used, here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I usually hunt pretty hard the third and fourth weeks of the month. I have a buddy of mine I grew up with who comes up and we hunt third week and, and I'll hunt the last week, you know, Thanksgiving. And then it goes to muzzleloader season here in Maine. So and hopefully by week three we'll get a little bit of snow, some tracking snow, I'm hoping. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. It's right for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's yeah. um, it's great to talk to you. Um, uh, you know, I I, I will say that uh, I I still remember heading up to the hungry trout and fishing with you on that first excursion. I I think we were down on the Miracle Mile, 
and um and i ended up catching a fish on a dry fly i think it was a hopper or a stimulator or something like that it was fall and uh yeah. I'll, and i'll never forget that. i'm sure you you um, it, we were just another client to you but to me it was a great experience so it's it's great to talk to you well that's great i remember you and your dad pulling in in a porsche <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes yes and, and i did the wonder thing yeah yeah. yeah, he yeah. he uh, he sold he sold his business and that was his that was his present and we we ran up there yeah. which was cool, what? um, and yeah, and uh, yeah now now I'm you know obviously deep in the in the fly fishing world and and stuff and so yeah. are you so um, yeah so uh, Bob where are you in in Maine now. Well, I've, I've always been here in the Western mountains of Maine. I mean, I've always had a place here, even when I was at the hungry trout, I was doing, you know, I, I was over there for the summer, but I'd come back here in the fall and winter. And, um, then at a certain point I decided to start my own guide service back here in Maine. And, uh, so I was fishing here, but I always set aside the month of October to, uh, you know, to, to go over to the Hungry Trout to help Jerry out with the grouse program. And I mean, we started it, he and I, and I've got 27 years into it now. Wow. So are you still, are yeah. you still working with those guys? I am just got back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. Jerry just sold the Hungry Trout actually. And so I'm there with the new owners, but uh, the gentleman who was running guiding uh, there for grouse is still there. And Jerry's son, Evan, owns and runs the fly shop now, right. uh, which is great. He runs all the guiding for fishing. So it's, it's still a lot of familiar faces. Yep. Yeah. I've had, I had, uh, I remember Jerry and I had Evan on, the, on my podcast here talking about fishing, fishing the ponds and stuff like that too. Um, yeah. Which is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a whole kind of, controversial topic about the those those ponds that they would fish for brook trout in are now um mm. i think being developed but yeah it's a shame you know yeah yeah it's kind of a shame yeah but yeah but anyway so um mm. well we're kind of like jumping right into it but bob i if you don't sure. mind i'd like you i'd like you to introduce yourself and talk just for a second a little bit about kind of like who you are and what you do for for a minute, if you don't okay. mind. Thanks for being on oh, here, sure. by the way. Oh, my pleasure, guy. Uh, to be honest, first time I've done. I, well, no, I was on a bird hunting podcast, but uh, but yeah, my name's uh, Bob Duport. I live in Carabasset Valley, Maine, and I am uh, the owner and founder of Western Mountains Fly Fishing. I concentrate on the Rangeley Lakes region, the Rapid, the Kennebago, the McGalloway Rivers. And I also run a drift boat on the Kennebec, several different stretches of the Kennebec. Uh, I also have been working with uh, Lillard Fly Fishing Expeditions and guiding in Montana and in Yellowstone uh, in mid-July and August. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm a bird guide, uh, founder of the, the grouse hunting program at the Hungry Trout, where I used to run the fly shop and the guide service. And I uh, somehow managed to package that all up into one big season. So uh, that's uh, a little bit about me. I've been lucky enough to guide in four different states and uh, on two continents. For a while, I ran a lodge in Chile uh, in the winters. I did that for five seasons called Lago Las Torres. 
and uh, with another gentleman from Maine. And uh, yeah, I've, uh, I kind of, as I got out of forestry, I segued into guiding and managed to make it work. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a wonderful pursuit and it continues. I'm here I am, I'm 58 and still doing it and loving it. That's awesome. And I, I remember when I, I met you in the, it was probably the mid nineties, mid mm -hmm. to late nineties at the hungry trout. And, um, you were still talking about doing some forestry work or you were just getting yes. out of it. Is that right? Is that about the time frame? Yes. I was just getting out of it. Uh, matter of fact, that's what brought me to that part of the Adirondacks. I had, uh, my company, I had been working with international paper. They sold off a lot of their land here in Maine. And they were going to employ me in the South and I didn't want to move to the South. So I moved over there for a season to work for a consultant forester. And that's how I met Jerry and Rachel and all the crew over there. And Jerry says, Hey, I need somebody to run the fly shop. And if you get your guides license here, you can, you know, pick up some work there. And I said, why not? And that's how it started. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So 50, so you're 58 and, mm -hmm. um, Obviously, I threw some questions at you, um, you sure. know, through email and stuff. And obviously, yeah. you know, a lot of people want to know how you kind of got into how you how you got into fly fishing, and if you had any uh, influential people on that. What's the story on that for you, Bob? Well, I I was always a fisherman, but not a fly fisherman. When I moved here to Western Maine to be a forester, I quickly learned that all the best fishing waters and you fished over here are fly fish only waters. And I wasn't a fly fisherman, didn't know how to do it. And it just so happens part of the management area that I was in charge of was the King and Bartlett area. Now King and Bartlett had a phenomenal um, main sporting camp on some remote ponds. It's all private, uh, gated access only. And I had access to it. And when a friend of mine found out I had access to that, his comment was, you get me in there and I'll teach you how to fly fish. And uh, so began my education. My friend, Bill Pierce, Bill, uh, quite a fly fisherman himself, came from a fly fishing background. He later would become the uh, director of the Maine Sporting Heritage Museum, which he did for a number of years. He just uh, got finished with that. And uh, actually, I'm going to do some grouse hunting with him next week. But uh, he was... He was kind of the person that got me going. Uh, when I went over to the Hungry Trout, I met Jerry and Rachel, and Rachel and I kind of started together. Rachel Finn has become arguably one of the better fly fishermen I've ever met. There is no one who is more obsessed with it, I can promise you that. <laughs> and, uh, she, she said that you had to be first on the podcast and then she and then she'd do it. So, uh, oh. so thank you. Uh, yeah, I agree. Okay. She's, you know, she's, both of you are like super, you know, you're super fun, classy people and, and with a, <laughs> with a great attitude. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's hard to find in, uh, in guides and it's great to know both of you, uh, you know, through, through the Osable and through Hungry Trout. But so tell me more about this, you know, so I've, my time in Maine has been around the rapid. Right. And and I have heard that. Um, so, my, you know, I did that in the late 90s into probably the first decade of the 2000s. And mm -hmm. um, and I've heard that lately it has been very dry up up there. Um, mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people that listen to the podcast are are 
um, Adirondack anglers and and stuff. Although there's people from all over the all over the continent and the world that listen to the podcast, and we thank them for that. But um, mm-hmm. tell me about if you don't mind, can can you can you talk a little bit about Maine and the rapid and the Kennebec and and a little bit like the the western side of Maine? I'd like to hear your take on the rapid from the past sure. to now, and then some of the mm-hmm. other maybe. Uh, uh, fisheries that you can talk about because they're kind of accessible to us they're they're six hour drive or so it's not too bad yeah it's not too bad yeah there's there's kind of three major fishing regions i would call that in maine they're you know starting from the east is the grand lake stream area then you get into the north central part of the state you get into the moosehead lake region a lot of different fisheries up there and then you get into the western mountains of maine or the rangeley region and there's a number of rivers there Um, I kind of specialized in the rapid for a long time. I ran the guiding at Lakewood camps for 16 seasons when Witt and Maureen Carter were the owners. Uh, They sold and be, uh, and uh, to another owner. uh, And I was with him for a couple of years and actually they just sold again to a friend of mine. So I guess I'll be going out there again uh, because he wants me back. But uh, yeah, that area, you know, this kind of the three major fisheries, which is the Kennebago, the Rapid, and the McGalloway. Each of those has a number of stretches that are kind of uh, specialized. Uh, those, are the, those are the major rivers in that area. And then just to the uh, east of that, of course, is the Kennebec, which starts right at the out, east outlet of Moosehead Lake and runs all the way to Merry Meeting Bay, you know, into the coast. Uh, the northern stretches of it uh, our trout and salmon fisheries, the southern stretches of it are actually fantastic smallmouth fisheries. Uh, I mostly have experience in the trout and salmon end of it to the north. But uh, yeah, the rapid, uh, the rapid's a really interesting river. I've spent, I probably have spent more time on it than just about anybody. There's maybe two or three of us who have spent kind of the same amount of time. Uh, myself, um, uh, Chris Thompson, uh, Pond in the River Guide Service, has done a, most of his career out there, mm-hmm. a few other folks. But uh, yeah, we've, we've spent quite a bit of time out there. It has, uh, you know, it's Maine's only full-time catch and release brook trout river. And consequently, it also has some very good fish. Um, you know, you can get a legitimate shot at a four to five pound brook trout there. And, uh, you know, if, if the timing's right, and you can't do that in a lot of places anywhere in the East anymore. Um, it's special, it protects its brook trout fishery. Maine does uh, statewide, but these heritage brook trout waters never been stocked, uh, never going to be are very heavily protected. When Federal Fish and Game did the study on brook trout of the heritage brook trout waters in America, Maine has 93% of them. They are the stronghold. If the brook trout fails, it's because we failed. So it's when you have that you know, majority, it, uh, they treat it pretty specially and the rapid is a very special place. Uh, yes, the fishing has had its ups and downs. You know, bass got in, illegally introduced in Umbagog Lake, and they got into the rapid, and that put uh, a certain amount of stress on the brook trout fishery. It did not destroy it, as a lot of people claimed was going to happen or said was had happened. Um, you know, I've, and I've got the pictures on my website to prove it, but it's obviously not as good as it was, but it's still a very strong fishery. And I recommended it. Yeah. 
No, I, I yeah, I, I recommend it too. I'm glad to hear that you think that it's still everything's still good there. Yeah. Why do you think it? What What do you think? Is it the, the topography and the and the uh, the gradient change? Why? What is up with that river in regards to creating this fishery and having brook trout in it that are like enormous? What do you think is the yeah. deal? Well, the big part is the catch and release. Like I said, I mean, it is a catch and release river. The lower McGalloway, equally, it's not quite catch and release, but it it, it almost is. And uh, it, it grows, you know, bigger fish uh, because of that. Also, you mentioned the gradient, as you know, because you used to stay down there at the lower dam area. From yeah, lower dam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. From lower dam all the way down to, to uh, Lake Umbagog, uh, it is... There is the highest, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to word this right, the greatest gradient change on any river in Maine that does not have a waterfall. So I believe it drops 500 vertical feet, which creates oxygenated water, which creates good hiding places, uh, and uh, it just keeps the water more oxygenated. The water warms up. You know, it is a dam-controlled water. It's a top-release dam. Uh, The water does warm up. But uh, those fish, uh, they also have good escape routes. They can escape into Umbagog. They can escape into Pond in the River. Uh, and, um, you know, they, uh, uh, they have good holding areas for them to handle the, the hot water when it, when it starts, yeah. you know, when the water hits 70. So I think without those features, it, I don't think it would grow the fish to the size that it does. Uh, but... Uh, but they survived. They've done. A, they've studied that river a lot, and uh, when you talk to the biologists, that's some of the points that they point out. So I'm just kind of reiterating what biologists told yeah. me. So the yeah, not the that that cold that what that cold water refuge or deep water refuge in the middle of the system, I think is a big deal. Huge. Yeah, deal. it's huge. And uh, and when they bag fish. Yeah, you know, back in the day. Federal Fish and Game came and did, uh, you know, they paid us all to go out there and catch fish and they tagged them. And uh, they did. And what they found in July and August, uh, all those transmitters were kind of all in the same place in the deep holes in Umbagog, the deep holes in Pond in the River. And that's, and consequently, they used that information to shut those areas down to fishing during the summer so the fish wouldn't be molested. And it, uh, it's it's helped in the survival. I don't think we'd have anywhere near the fishery we have uh, without it. So, right, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to. I'm I'm gonna even though we have questions and stuff, I'm I'm just gonna kind of keep mm-hmm. going with what we what we're going cool. talking about. Um, I do want to I do want to try to correlate the Adirondacks in Maine a little bit. I think it, it you'll be a great guest to talk about this because. Mm-hmm. Um, the conservation side of me um, tends to always compare like the work that we're doing with, with our trout power organization, with um, the, uh, the native, uh, native fish coalition. And mm-hmm. one of the things I just want, I wanted to kind of ask you first, first of all, is we're experiencing this, this thing in the Adirondacks that, Scott Daskowitz was just on a podcast and talked about talked about it and and described it as the golden age of of brook trout fishing right now um, in the Adirondacks and it is amazing and I don't know if you're experiencing it but I want to talk to you about this uh, if you are experiencing it 
climate change is a big issue. And I wanted to get you to talk about this in regards to, before we get to the comparison of, May, of Maine and, and New York, I wanted you to talk about this, you know, the fear of climate change and also the fact that it seems as though we're experiencing some pretty good trout fishing right now. Right now. Um, yeah. What's your take on that? I, you know, I look at the cold water fisheries. There's, I don't think anybody has a fishery that they could stand up and say, our fishery, you know, our cold water fishery is getting better every year. I, I don't know if anybody can say that with confidence. Uh, I think we're all kind of hanging on. Uh, I will tell you the farther north you go, the better the cold water fisheries are. Uh, you know, southern Maine, uh, southern part of the southern part of the brook trout range or landlock salmon range thrived a little better years ago. And uh, as we get warmer temperatures, I think the areas that are thriving are farther north. That, you know, that goes right to climate change. And uh, as far as uh, what we're seeing now, um, I think we're still seeing some strong fishing. I mean, uh, it's, I, I, I see it in shorter windows of time because we are getting, you know, I mean, last year we were, Maine anyway, was in a real drought condition. We had a real tough year. Uh, a lot of us just shut our fisheries, kind of self-shut a lot of our fisheries down. Uh, but this past season, we did much better. But overall, I know there are fisheries that aren't holding the brook trout that they were years ago when I started uh, in size and number and so forth. And there's a lot that goes to that, everything from habitat to, you know, to climate change to so forth. Mm -hmm. But in the places, and these are the heritage waters where they've never stocked, never going to, naturally reoccurring, these fish are reproducing on their own. Um, in Maine, you're talking in Maine, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In the Adirondacks, I've noticed, um, and I don't have as much experience there, but um, we talked about the the ponds um, that we used to fish on through the hungry trout. And now that we no longer do that, we're out there in a number of different places throughout the St. Regis canoe area, through the floodwood area. And I did pond trips there this past month. And we had some very good brook trout fishing. Um, I think, uh, you know, from a pond situation, you get much better survival rates than you do in rivers because they're not as susceptible to big temperature swings. Those fish can find the oxygen levels and the, and, uh, the depths and, uh, and, the, and the cold colder temperatures that they need. And if they're getting the spawning going, uh, I can tell you having- Were you surprised, Bob? I, I, I'm curious if you, were you, were you, are you encouraged by what you're seeing in the Adirondacks or? I am. I am. Uh, no, I am. It's, it's interesting because I, I hadn't really thought much about it uh, because I got mentored uh, by uh, an Adirondack guide by the name of Jeff Kirschman uh, on pond fishing. And uh, he talked about, you know, growing up fishing ponds, carrying in, doing all these things. And, when we did them together and I've done them on my own and I've guided them, I'm getting decent results. I mean, I, I felt pretty happy about the fish we were catching, the quality of the fish, the size of the fish, et cetera. And it's a bit of a surprise because, you know, I mean, if you, if, if you look, uh, you know, that just from a, 
angler survey, I guess, uh, there's a fair amount of people out there fishing. And uh, the farther you get away from them, uh, you're seeing better fish and so forth. It's, it, I was uh, just especially these last two seasons where I've, I've really dug in a little harder and done more of those trips. Um, I am a little surprised. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't doubt it. So you, yeah. I mean, it sounds as though in summary that you're saying Maine is maybe steady or a little bit on the decline, seeing a little more of the threat of climate change. And am I hearing from you that perhaps the Adirondacks is somewhat surprising that it's, it's doing okay, maybe, maybe better than expected? Would you from, say that? From a pond situation, I think I could say that. Um, from a pond situation, yes, I don't spend a fraction of the time uh, on rivers uh, when I go over there. I'm mostly doing remote pond trips. Um, mm -hmm. When you talk to Rachel Finn, she will fill you in on a lot of the uh, issues uh, with rivers. And I think, I think it's two very different topics. Um, but from what I've seen, I've been pretty encouraged. I mean, our pond trips... Um, you know, I, I, I had a guy this year who was a lifelong um, Mainer. I got him over to the Adirondacks and he caught his biggest brook trout this year. Uh, and he was pretty impressed with it. And it, uh, it was a surprise. But, but yes, I, 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 think, I think there are some, some positives going on out there. The biologist that you talked with, uh, I don't know if it's the heyday of it. I, I, I don't know if I would phrase it as that. But I would well, say I think, I think there's suspect that I think that I think that there is this um, and Scott is an engineer. He's just a fisherman. Oh, okay. um, I mean, I, I talk with um, I talk with the with the DEC biologists all the time um, mm -hmm. and they're cautious and they're very worried about climate change and stuff. But the um, the consensus among anglers right now is that like they almost feel like it's <laughs> like nobody told the brook trout that uh, that climate change is going on in the Adirondacks and they're and they're just like oh acid rain is uh, taken care of and uh, we're 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 okay you know it's you know it's like they didn't get the memo and uh, it's interesting you know and so and you know this and the stream thing um, we'll talk to Rachel about it and uh, there, there's a lot of work that we're doing in our own conservation group, kind of monitoring some of the streams. And a lot of it has to do with just like the, like we were talking about with the rapid, that the, mm -hmm. the if the ecosystem has cold water refuge and essentially a, uh, a spawning ground or nursery, um, and it's managed well, in your case in Maine, it's managed to the point where it is uh, catch and release. And in the Adirondacks, there's some of these places that essentially are remote. You know, there's yes. stream systems that have some ponds in between, and they're so remote that they really don't get a lot of traffic. And those ones are doing okay. Actually, they're doing quite well. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, kind of Maine versus the Adirondacks. And, uh, and I'll preface this in a way that I've, I, there are some places that I have gone to and taken people to in the Adirondacks. And they have, um, they have told me that it reminds them of places in the, in the Pacific Northwest because it's so kind of mossy and green and wet and lush and stuff. And I haven't, I haven't been, I haven't fished in the Pacific Northwest. I can't wait to, I will someday. But, um, 
I, I'm curious your opinion of like when you're when you're in the Adirondacks, do you, are you ever in places where you're like, oh, this feels a lot like Maine or not? And, and vice versa when you're in Maine. Are they, are they very similar ecosystems? T t talk to me about this as if I've never have never been there and you've spent so much time in both places. Yeah. Um, the Adirondacks is a special place to me. Uh, it's where I became a forester. I'm a Paul Smith College grad. It's the first place I really got opened, opened my eyes to, you know, to big, big forests um, and working in those areas. It, it is very different from Maine. Maine is just from a land base. Uh, Maine is owned by commercial timber companies. It's, you know, it's paper company land, basically. And most of it is harvested and it is roaded and so forth. And you're never that far, although it's a very remote place, uh, there's roads and, you know, harvesting going on and all that. It's, it's commercial timberland, it's working forest. You go into the places like the St. Regis, you're smack dab in the middle of the Adirondack Park, which as you know, is forever wild. No roads, no logging, no nothing. There are hiking trails, there's a few, you know, there are some commercial uh, land properties inside of the park, paper companies, et cetera. I worked for a company that had land in the park, but all the state land is forever wild. When I hike from pond to pond, say in the St. Regis or, or wherever, um, I'm seeing trees that I just will never see again in Maine. Uh, in size and uh, you know I take pictures of them again looking at it from a forester's perspective so the Adirondacks is I, I just look at it and say so wow this is what happens when you basically walk away from it for over a hundred years this is what you can get and uh, you know trees much more open forest not as much undergrowth um, it looks like it's never been disturbed in a lot of these places so uh, talk so T teach us about that for a second, Bob, what it's like looking through your eyes when you're looking mm -hmm. at these trees and the species that you're seeing that are impressive, you know, mm. um, what are you seeing? Well, tell me what, tell me what it's like. Well, I'm seeing the Northern, what's known as the Northern hardwood complex, which is beech birch maple and, uh, from the softwood and its spruces and fir and pine, uh, but just mature, you know, we allow trees in a commercial timber industry to get to a certain usable size and then we harvest them and then we start the next crop and, and it's a little more of a production line. Now, you know, Maine's the most forested state in the country, but it doesn't have the quality that you see in the Adirondacks. I walk through these, I was just doing it the last day of the season, the 15th of October up there, and I was carrying through this area and it just... You know, I'm tripping on the trail because I'm not looking at my feet. I'm looking at all the trees, you know, and mm -hmm. it's 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 really it's really very different. I think if you took a lifelong Mainer who's grown up and seen all, you know, because this has always been paper company land. I mean, Great Northern Paper owned two and a half million acres up here. You know, the company I worked for owned close to close to a million it's uh, it's a gigantic, you know, kind of the breadbasket of the paper industry. Uh, and 
they had always seen harvesting. They had always seen trees. Yeah, there were some big trees, but uh, you know, there's there's always different stages of harvesting going on. I think if you took any one of those people and took them on a hike through the Adirondacks, they'd be shocked at the size and the quality. And uh, you know, it it I, I shouldn't say park like because it's not a it's not a park in that respect. It hasn't been manicured. It's just left to mature on its own. And it reminds me, that this is probably what a lot of the mature forests look like, you know, in the northern hardwood complex that northern New York, northern Vermont, New Hampshire, central and northern Maine. Uh, it probably looked a lot like this before we started putting our hands on it. And you can still find that in the Adirondacks and you can't in a lot of other places. I mean, Baxter State Park in Maine, uh, a few other places up in the northeast kingdom of Vermont. But for the most part, what you see in the Adirondacks is very unique. And I encourage folks to, you know, like I said, I'm there to fish and so forth, but having a forestry background, that to me has been the wonderful part of it. And whenever I have a client there, I always point it out and they usually notice it if they've been other places because you just don't see that anymore. Um, it's, uh, and, and, you know, by the way, this, you know, this podcast is, is more about uh, people that are appreciating being outside. And I think that as we get older, um, we, ex we appreciate the experience maybe more or the debate is whether or not it, you know, what's more important, the experience or the fish that we catch. Um, mm. I, I find myself just today for, for, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So just today I, I fished and I was planning actually on going up to the Adirondacks and I didn't go. My wife wasn't feeling too good. So I stayed kind of local and um, I ended up going up towards uh, Hinkley Reservoir. And I was just inside the Adirondack Park, and I was close to the road, and I could hear cars. I had my horn back, and I was trying a new rod that, that I'm working on. And I couldn't, I couldn't settle in, Bob. I just couldn't, like, I, I couldn't find, I couldn't center myself like I normally can when I'm more in a wild place. And it made me realize that I'm beginning to kind of define like what wild is and being near a road and being in a reservoir and being able to look up and see a, a you know, the discharge out of a dam very clearly is like, it's, this is not, I couldn't get there. Like, you know, I couldn't mentally get there. I couldn't physically get there. And I was like, all right, you know, I, this isn't, this isn't it. I mean, I know there's a chance at a huge Brown and, up up in that place and I was like I really didn't care I kind of was like I didn't I wasn't finding the therapy that I wanted which was to be able to feel like I was in some place wild yeah taking taking yeah. that I want I want to talk about that for a second about about getting somewhere that's wild yeah. um yeah. can we do you know where I'm going with this whole thing how sometimes you know, you're talking about in Maine, and I don't want to, and I'm, we don't have to talk about comparing Maine to the Adirondacks anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that if you're walking around in Maine and you're looking at these trees, and I'm assuming that you're looking at them by the size, is that right, Bob? You're looking at like mm -hmm. the size of the tree, and yeah. and um, and even if, and I'm just asking you, so like if you, if the, what is the time frame that a place might be harvested? Is it 
10 years, 20 years, 30 years? How, what's the time frame in between harvesting of, of these trees? Well, usually they go, you know, there's different applications, but anything, you know, uh, I mean, I wrote harvest plans that were 40 years into the future um, and they were taking out certain species. But, you know, the farther north you go, the longer it takes a tree to, to grow to a maturity. So it takes longer. So, I mean, the, you might enter a stand two or three times over the course of 40, 50 years to do different things, to do different applications, to get what the, the, you know, the, uh, the residual stand to grow better. So th there's a variety. You could, you could have operations going on every 15 years in certain areas so so when you uh, yeah. when you when you with your trained eye when you look at the ground mm -hmm. and you're in like let's say the saint regis and you're looking at a place that let's say hasn't been touched i'm gonna I'm, i don't know if this is true it hasn't been touched in in 100 years um mm -hmm. compared to a place that has been harvested in 25 years 15 15 years 25 years 30 years when you're looking at the ground and stuff can you tell that one place kind of looks older and untouched longer than than another or is like once you get to 50 years it, you pretty much can't tell no you you really can tell um you, because you it, it takes, yeah it, it takes on it takes on a characteristic uh that just hasn't been altered and you, you know everything from the subspecies you see the mosses and the lichens and things you won't see other places in more commercial timberlands, all, all of them, you know, have their own certain beauty to it. But uh, I mean, as a grouse hunter, I like managed forests because I see more grouse in them and I see different stages of the forest and I have an eye for that. Uh, but like you say, there is something about walking through a stand of timber that hasn't been touched. Uh, you know, I do work, uh, out west and uh i guide for an outfitter in yellowstone park and you know talk about a place that hasn't been touched in a while the only thing that really happens to it is fire you get off into the backcountry, and you notice you know you notice things that you wouldn't see other places it's just you once you get away from the road a little bit it's a pretty quiet place and it really affects you. And it's, it's what you were talking about, what you saw the other day. You know, I, I in the park, I had a park ranger tell, told me that they study everything there. And they said one of the things they found was 97% of the people that enter Yellowstone Park never go more than a quarter mile from a road. So his advice to me was be a three percenter, get out, get out there, get a couple <laughs> of miles back in, hike up, yeah. you know, hike up yeah. these rivers and and don't just fish near the bridge, you know, hike and hike for an hour or two before you start fishing. And you're going to see more and you're going to be in an area where it's just you get the feeling, you know, you're the first person to see it. Uh, and that, I think it has affected me the same way the Adirondacks have when I go out and see places like that. You know, I, I've been through a couple of wilderness areas. I was in the Beartooth Absaroka wilderness area this year and last year, did a little overnight up in there. And and uh, same thing, just places that just don't get touched. Yeah, fire is going to get it, a few other things, but that's about it. Other than that, this place really hasn't changed since Roosevelt put his pen to it in, you know, the early 1900s. So, so is that what you when you consider some a place that's wild to you 
Um, can you define that? What, can you tell like when you're, when you're going in and you realize, okay, I'm, I'm kind of crossing the threshold. Can you tell? I kind of can. It's kind of a feeling. It's kind of like the feeling you have, I think, with, you know, when you were just describing that, that fishing trip the other day. And it's, it's more of a feeling. You feel like you're, you're setting yourself out on a course. It's, you're not going to hear vehicles and you're probably not going to see much in the way of people. And the ground, other than a trail you might be on, uh, really hasn't been altered in a lot of ways. And I think it, I think it kind of sets you up to a mindset for that. Is it any more or less remote than other places? That I don't know. But I've been in some pretty remote places in the American West, uh, scapegoat wilderness, um, like I said, Beartooth Absaroka wilderness area, a few other places, uh, backcountry of the park. Um, my outfitter does a trip into the thoroughfare wilderness, which is one of the most remote places in the lower 48. Um, you know, I keep saying I want to get into the Frank Church or River of No Return wilderness area in Idaho, two and a half million acres that is just basically sitting there. Um, and when you get into these places, it feels different. Like I said, it kind of, it's kind of a mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, by the numbers, it may not be any more or less remote than other places, but yeah, I, I think just it, it's a feeling. It's it's a hard thing to describe, but do you, but I think you touched on it with what you experienced the other day. It just you, the feeling just wasn't there. Do you uh, you know John Muir talked about transcendence? Do you mm -hmm. do you know you know what do you think of that word? That's that you know um, trans, transcendence in regards to your. You're finding a, you know, there's a, there's a new boundary or an endless boundary, or you're almost like a, somewhat slightly uncomfortable in regards to the fact that you've entered something new. What's your, what's your, I, I always thought it was kind of like bullshit. And now I'm beginning to realize that it's kind of like pornography. You know what, when you see it, I'm beginning to realize like, yeah. I know when I'm starting to get wild because I feel it. Yeah, it does. I think, you know, if, if you had to describe it as starting as a trailhead and going into a wilderness area or wherever, uh, yeah, you'd be, you'd be walking along your trail. And I, I think you're right. I think at a certain point, it would, it's not so much what you're seeing, it's what you're feeling. Um, you know, you've got a pack on your back, you've got your provisions with you. For the most part, you're on your own. And I think that's a big part that defines it because there is that's that little uneasiness in your stomach and it, it's, it's a good thing. You know, it, it, as long as you're prepared for what you're doing, I think it's a very good thing. You should be a little uneasy. It's, you know, this, this isn't to coin a phrase of walk in a park. This is, uh, it, it should be a little uneasy. It should be a little foreboding. Um, and I, I think then when, if you can bring yourself to get comfortable with that, and that doesn't always happen, um, then it opens you up. I think then that's, that's maybe that's where the transcendence comes from. Once you can kind of get by that, you know, that, that uneasiness, then you start looking around and seeing things that you otherwise wouldn't see or didn't or couldn't see in other places that might be a little more controlled situations, national forest, versus a wilderness area, for instance, that type of a thing. 
So mm -hmm. I, I think to me, that's where it comes from. It's that uneasiness, you know, and, and boy, you know, I'm glad I signed in at that, at that trailhead and I'm glad I let so-and-so know I'm going to be out here because I'm on my own out here. And you still yeah, feel that? You gotta, I oh, mean, absolutely. You've spent, you spent a lot of time in the woods. So you're still, yeah. you're, I questioned this just the other day because I went into the woods myself alone and I was very conscious of the fact that I was like, why am I still, why do I still feel some, you know, I don't, I don't like to use the word anxiety because everybody uses that term as in regards to being negative and it's a condition. I mm. felt that uneasiness, just like you're talking about. And I was thinking to myself, why do I still feel this? But that's part of the, that's part of the wildness, isn't it? You still feel it? I think I absolutely. And especially if it's a new area and here I am, like I say, I'm 58 years old and I'm hiking into wilderness areas in the American West where maybe nobody else is going to be around for a couple of days. And uh, yeah, um, I think we feel it because of our experience in the past. Um, I think of that yeah, maybe it is anxiety. I don't know. Maybe that uneasiness, that gut of your stomach, that all, all of the experiences I've been lucky enough to have in the forest and all the education of all the things I've learned and have had taught to me by other guides and just my experiences, that uneasiness is going to go away when I start relying on my experience and, you know, this isn't my first rodeo, I've been doing this a bunch, but I think that uneasiness is a gateway to that, that opening up, if you will. I think you got to go through that. I know plenty of people who are, you know, real major backcountry folks. I've been lucky enough to guide with a couple. I've met a number of them. If you could have some of them on this podcast, they'd probably tell you, yeah, you know, I mean, well, look at yourself. You're, you know, you're a husband and a father and you're, you know, you've got, there are consequences if things go bad and, but your experience yeah. sets you on a path that says, okay, I've covered all my bases. I've got, I've got the gear I need. I've got the experience to use it. I've got this goal of what I'm going to do while I'm out here. So that uneasiness is okay. But, uh, you know, from a guiding standpoint, when I'm guiding, that anxiety never goes away because I am truly responsible for another human being. I tell young guides that all the time. Uh, Forbes magazine used to do the, the, the uh, 50 most stressful jobs in America. Know what number 16 is? Guide. You know why? because you are truly responsible for another human being. You can't, there's no waiver that's gonna get you out of it. There's no way you can get out of it. You are responsible for another person. That uneasiness, when I'm guiding in a wilderness situation, and I've been lucky enough to do that in the West, uh, that doesn't go away. When I'm out there on my own, it goes away when I, like I said, when I allow it to, but, um, again, it's, uh, so I guess it's, it depends on what mode I'm in, whether I'm recreationally out there or in a, when I'm in a guiding situation. Well, you, you have, know, I worked with Rachel and I'm sorry, I worked with Rachel and Jeff in Alaska. And when we were up there, nobody's coming to get you, you know, <laughs> and, right. uh, 
so uh, yeah, you got to you got to be on your game, and you're always on easy. Yeah, well, it's 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 actually been an awesome conversation to hear you say this because I was beginning to um, I'm going through this weird phase, you know, because like I'm I'm in my mid 40s and I'm starting to question, you know, sometimes you kind of question yourself as a man, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not like you're getting soft, you know, and mm -hmm. I've been way more mindful of my feelings when I go into the woods specifically because um, I've been dealing and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast about how there's this um, this this stress that you experience when you have the responsibility of, of a family when you are going off grid. And um, and I've been very aware of this <coughs> and uh, and and it's been making me wonder like whether or not I I lost anything, you know, and, uh, and in regards to my, my being or myself and hearing you talk about this makes me, makes me realize and, and think that more of these people that I know that go out in the woods a lot, that some of the things that we have in common is, um, if I'm like, if, if you and I went into St. Regis together, it's a hell of a lot different than going in by yourself. Yes. You know, it, it really is. Um, Oh yeah, and, and and when it's with somebody that you know knows how to how to uh, be absorbed into the wilderness, the stress level goes down quite a bit. When you when you do it yourself, and you are, uh, and I believe everybody should. By the way, if you really want to experience what you and I are talking about, walking to the point where you you hit that point of uneasiness that you and I are talking about, when you do that alone. You you really are aware of that uneasiness. Do you agree with me? Compared to oh, being yeah. with somebody else, yeah. it's and then yep. and then calming yourself down and and you know and being able to continue on, as you said, to kind of like center yourself and and go. When you do that yourself alone, it can be a wonderful experience. Um, and and maybe that is kind of this kind of whole transcendent kind of thing when you go from the stress of being outside and, and being in a wild area and you're a little bit uneasy and then you kind of like rely on your skills and you take yeah. in the experience and you actually enjoy it. That's, that's a pretty yeah. great thing. Right. So yeah. anyway, well, we got about, we got about 10 minutes left. And, and one of the things I want to oh, okay. talk about that I want to talk about with you was um, switching gears is how yeah. things are changing kind of in the, in the industry and and um and how things are done and stuff like that you know you've you've been doing this a long time um yeah. and it's okay to kind of be open here in regards to if sure. some stuff is kind of like pissing you off or anything i'd love to hear it yeah. what how are things changing in regards to guiding and people that say they're guiding or they you know or or social media any of that stuff what's your what, what's your take on any of that stuff well i started in guiding before social media so it wasn't around. I started before there were cell phones, really, or they were just starting. Uh, but social media has changed everything. Uh, in uh, I think guiding at one point was a pursuit, and now it is very much a business. Um, I tell people 
you know, uh, just from a numbers, I mean, just the amount of people that are out there doing this, for instance, my guides license number in Montana is 44,074. I don't think there's 44,000 fishermen in Maine, let alone guides. So <laughs> there's a lot of people out there doing this. Okay. Um, and I think just raw numbers, it represents a, a much bigger facet of, of this business than, than we think. I mean, you can't do anything that doesn't involve social media in the outdoors in general. I mean, you look at, I, I came along in fly fishing when a river runs through, it came out. That's when I ran the Hungry Trout Fly Shop and it exploded because of a movie, one movie, one so-so box office movie. And look what it did to the sport. I would argue if you added up all the people that social media has added to this sport and outdoor recreation in general, it far eclipses that. So everybody talks about the movie and how the, and I was there, I watched it happen. It went kaboom. Uh, look what it did to the state of Montana. Look what it did to that. My tiny little fly shop. I was running the size of a one car garage. You know, it, it, it affected all of that. But since then, social media has eclipsed all that. It has brought people into the sport. It has kept people into the sport. It has energized, you know, new people. I'm involved with backcountry hunters and anglers, and we're all about trying to get people, you know, into the backcountry and the public lands and so forth. And I don't think it would be nearly as successful as it was without social media, without that acknowledgement and that validation that people get from that. Hey, I put a post up the other day of me holding a pair of grouse. I think you saw it. Uh, you know, on social media and saying how good it was to be back home in Maine and, and hunting in Maine. And, uh, you know, we're all involved in it and it has changed everything completely. Some would say for the good, some would say for the bad. Uh, both are valid arguments. Um, I got to watch it start. I got, you know, and, I, and I'm going through it myself. I, you know, I have a website. I have all the other stuff that we all do in this business that every guy does. Um, but I, I, I think the jury's still out on, at least in my mind on, on how I think of it all. Like I said, I've seen some really good things come out of it. I've seen some really petty things come out of it. I like to think social media in guiding is a mirror. It's not a megaphone. It's a mirror. You look into social media. You are who you are. You're going to say and do on these things what you would say and do anyway. The fact that other people can see them now is another story altogether. I don't get too judgmental with the whole social media thing. I don't get pissed off when somebody says, go fish this river, and then everybody complains. He's filling this people full, you know, full of river. This is, this is our land. These are our rivers. This is our resource. Get out there and use it um, because there are plenty of people who want to take it away from you. I think if we can get more people outdoor, whether it's through social media or by any other means, a movie, a podcast, you name it, it's not bad because now we're all soldiers. And now the next time somebody tries to come and take this away from you, uh, it's going to be harder to do because we've, we've, we've made an army of soldiers that say, hey, this is important. 
You know, when I guide young people, I'll give you the social media example. I'll say, you can take your pictures and you can do all that, but I want you to look around. This is important. This is yours. This belongs to you. And if somebody comes to try to take it, hopefully you've had a good enough experience where you say, no, I'm going to fight against that. That's what I hope my big hope for social media is. It's made soldiers out of people who maybe might not have cared all that much. And the, and and the taking, the, the, that's great. The, your opinion is awesome. The taking of it, of it, you know, air quotes mm. on that, is yeah. the, the freedom to be outside. Is that what you would elaborate on? Well, that and just kind of through a public land situation for, you know, for instance, you know, uh, it, it's all of our public lands that we have. There are plenty of politicians and industry groups that would love to use that land for something else or not have it at all. And we have to fight for it. Uh, you yes. know, anytime there's an access issue, you know, uh, a trail, everything from a simple trailhead to you know, huge blocks of land that might get landlocked by private land. It's happening right now. You know, if we're soldiers out there and when we go out and use this land, we're going to stand up at that town meeting or at that, you know, public forum by the Forest Service or whatever and say, no, we can't do this. This is our land. This is important. And when that river is threatened by whatever development or whatever comes along, if we have people that are out there fishing and using that river, they're going to say, no, that's a source of my joy, of my recreation, uh, you know, and, uh, and I'm going to stand up against it. The only way you do that is through numbers, because it, there's, there's just as much, there's just as much pushback from people who are, like I said, looking to take this from you. And if we don't stand up, it could very well be taken. We've seen it happen in places. We've seen it happen on public lands. And uh, I look at the work that some of these organizations do and it's relentless. They are always fighting this all the time. So that's why I tell my young people when I'm guiding them is this is important. And I am very encouraged by the youth, social media or not. I'm very encouraged at their level of concern and their level of involvement. Uh, I get to work with my outfitter who specializes in teenage groups. I don't have kids myself, so I get to see this kind of firsthand for the first time. And I'm pretty impressed. So, and if they're the ones doing the social media, that's okay. I'm, I'm, fi I'm fine with that. It's, yeah, it, so it sounds like that, that access to public land is a concern for you. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's going on all the time. I'm I'm involved in my chapter here in New England and in New York and in Montana. And I look at, see what's going on. And, and, you know, again, and it's relentless. It's today it's here and tomorrow it'll be over there and, Oh, this river. And, you know, and, and we all have examples of fisheries, for example, that have, that have taken it hard because of development or industrial complex as it is. And if we can get together and stop that, uh, or, you know, at least be part of the planning process. Um, everything, everybody's going to win from there. And yeah, go ahead. I'm just, I'm curious, like, so that like inside, I don't want, you don't have to, to get into it too much, but inside the, mm -hmm. the realm of the hungry trout and those ponds that are being developed, how, mm -hmm. <laughs> what have you, 
that's got to be a pretty good example of this, right? I mean, kind of, well, that's although that's yeah. private, but it's still it's yeah, it is it is private. It was private land. It was always private land. Yeah, somebody buys a piece of property, they have the right to do with it, you know, within the boundaries of the law. What they do, um, you know, I'm a I'm a landowner. You're a landowner. Uh, where, uh, but it, it's it's more the disappointment, uh, you know, that there's a resource there that's probably not going to survive that. I mean, I, I say that kind of pessimistically, but um, it's probably not going to survive what's going on out there. And it's a classic piece of Adirondack area. And it just pains me. I, I can't ever go see it again. I just can't. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but, I know. I hear yeah. you. Yeah. Well, right? um, but that's the big changes I have seen and, and, you know, through social media and, um yeah, it's. Uh, I think the you know you 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 talked about you know, about being with younger people, and mm. uh, and telling them to look around, and I think that that is a that's a big deal. I think that if the upcoming generations are used to looking down, so to speak, at their screens yeah. and looking around is a is, you know they need kind of like some of our some of us older people to kind of tell them to look around. What do you think? I am very encouraged. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, like I said, I mean, because again, I'm not a parent. So I hear about kids from friends and family members who are parents and I'm hearing things like they're apathetic, they don't care, blah, blah, blah. And then I go out with a group uh, or, you know, I help out with a group that's going out and I see them and, and, couldn't be farther from the truth they're very involved and they're they care quite a bit and yeah there are a few people who in in the group that may not be as interested as others but they i get the feeling that they're we're handing this off to people who are uh smart uh they're engaged and again social media may have something to do with that it probably has a huge part of that um and they're they're just cynical enough where they're not just going to believe the first person who tells them we should do this or we should do that uh, and and i think that's through experience i'm i am very impressed I, I like i said if i take one thing away working with these teenage groups it's the caring end of it and like i said as a guy who's 58 years old and doesn't have kids when i guide somebody that has a young uh, you know young boy or girl as part of the group i, I try to I, I work extra hard and i try to show them a little bit of the bigger picture because you know one these days aren't coming back and two uh like i said it, it's important and I know coming out of COVID, a lot of guides in my age group were saying the same thing, that if there is something good that came from all of that that we just went through, it was, it got people outside. You know, my hope personally is some young boy or girl, you know, got dragged kicking and screaming away from their screen and they went out and they saw something that affected the rest of their lives. And maybe that's the new, maybe we just created the next Roosevelt or Lee Metcalf or Frank Church or Ansel Adams 
or Bill Bryson or whatever the, the, the regime might be from art to film to conservation to politician. Maybe we just created that person and 30 years from now, that's going to be the person that saves all of this. That's my very optimistic view of what just happened. And everybody, you know, everybody complained, oh, the woods are full of people and we can't get a campground and all that. And yeah, okay, I get it. But maybe there's that one kid that's going to make a big difference. And maybe we just created that. And if we did, maybe it was all worth it. I don't know. But that, that again, that's my optimistic view of yeah. what we're seeing and, and with, with the youngsters, you know, if, if you will. And I can say that because I'm not a parent. So I don't no, know. That's, you you're know. Not, no, you're, yeah, I, I well, your I, I want to talk about this for a second because I I okay. mentioned this before to a couple people and and it's exactly what you're saying is that the the true leadership of change is going to be when someone who's in a board meeting or in front of a committee or whatever uh, is an is an influential uh, individual and the topic comes up of, well, you know, we can save, you know, uh, 1% margin if we take this stuff and we just throw it out instead of, uh, you know, recycling it or responsibly get rid of it, getting rid of it or, or whatever. And that person stands up and says, are you out of your goddamn mind? You know, right. I, I, I want, I want our margin to go down 2% and I want you to find a way for us to do something that benefits the environment. You know, those leaders in those situations are those people that you're talking about that you're going to guide or that are going to be outside. Right. They're not, they're never, they're never going to stand up in a situation like that unless they have experienced a, the outdoors and the reason to be a leader, a true leader. I'm not talking about a great you know, business person or entrepreneur that has found some great value proposition and some, you know, awesome thing to capitalize on. That's great. You know, and, and there's, you can say what you want about um, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia and mm -hmm. stuff, but you know, yeah. they, from a leadership standpoint and, 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 uh, and making a, a statement about, trying to do something to try to uh, to do good yeah those are the people like you said yeah. like you know that the, the like the 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 roosevelts for example i mean like to think about what what teddy roosevelt did right. back in the day right to have the balls to stand right. up and 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 i don't even think that at the time he was doing it to to grow his personal brand I believe his heart was really in it, that he just really cared about these places. He did. I mean, his whole life was around it. I mean, yeah. you, you look at like, hey, I mean, you're right. The, the guts to stand up and do that. Frank Church spent his entire political career in Idaho and finally created, basically at the time of his death, the Frank Church Wilderness Area. It's the largest wilderness area in the lower 48. It's millions of acres. And it's going to be there forever because he went into this area and it affected him. Ansel Adams created those amazing prints because he went into these areas and it affected him. 
it changed your trajectory of their life. I'm not saying that every kid that goes out there is, is going to suddenly become an, a quote outdoors person, but if you let it and it changes you or it affects you, the next time you do it or the next time you're in that situation, it's going to build upon it. I can say that confidently. I was a city kid. I didn't grow up out here. I want, I had an interest in the outdoors and I was lucky enough to get involved in the Boy Scouts and it brought me outdoors. And when I got outdoors, it changed the trajectory of my life. So I can say that from firsthand experience. I'm not looking at somebody else's biography and saying, see what this person did. Um, you know, uh, it, it, so it, it, it means something. And like I said, that's what I hope for in the future. That's, that's what I hoped for coming out of COVID with this next big explosion of, of outdoor enthusiasm and, you know, across the board outdoor use. Um, and that's what I see anytime well, the, I see. You, you, you use stuff. the word soldier. And I yep. will say that, that, that the, the, um, the leader side of me is always trying to encourage people, younger people, that they they need to be confident to stand up and yeah. and uh you know just supporting it because uh they you know i shouldn't even say that there's like there's the enjoying the outdoors period great that's good for their life that's good right that's awesome awesome you know check the box good job those that are going to enjoy being outside and then they're going to have the courage to stand up for something I think it's part of our job and with this next generation to encourage these, the, the new generation coming up, encouraging them to say, look, you might have to fight. Just telling you, if you really love this, you're going to have, you're going to come up to a choice inside your gut as you get older and you're going to decide, am I going to be a conservationist or am I just going to enjoy the outdoors? They're both fine. If that's all you want to do yeah. is enjoy the outdoors, that's great. You're going to be a great person for it. But the world needs the conservationist that's going right. to, you know, that, that is going to stand up and fight. And yeah. okay. and I, I think the complacency is is running rampant in regards to like, you know, listening and 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 going along with the flow, but not really fighting for what they think is is the right thing to do. And I think that that's one of the things I want to encourage with younger people is you're going to need to, you're going to need to fight. You're going to need to step up. Just like you said, you use the word soldier. Right. It's, it's, and it's got to be important to you. It's uh, you can't, you can't put the kind of time and burn the kind of capital that you're going to need, be it within yourself or within your community or within your state uh, unless it means something to you. And you look at the, you look at the big monuments, some of the people I just mentioned, uh, that did just that. And they, they, they were, um, if you, if you did a bio on all of them, you know, most of them, you know, the, the Muir's and like I said, the Adams and, and Metcalf, all these people got taken into the outdoors when they were kids and you know they all had that we backpacked every weekend in northern california or wherever and all of a sudden they're at the forefront of whatever you know industry they're in talking about this stuff roosevelt made it personal um you know gifford pinchot our nation's very first forester he was right there next to roosevelt 
forming national forests when they had one week to do it. And they worked and they created, they created that entire forest service system in one week because it was going to get vetoed otherwise. If that wasn't personal to them, they wouldn't have cared. And we'd have a fraction of the land that's open to all of us these days. Do you, do you think there so, was mutual? No, you, think, you think there was mutual respect between uh, Pinchot and Muir, or no? Or do you think they hated each other? I don't know. I mean, Muir was such, uh, you know, uh, uh, he was so much of an introvert. Uh, I don't think he liked a lot of people, uh, but. Uh, Pinchot came, you know, because Pinchot came from the big upper crust family East Coast. You know, I mean, they Yale named the their forestry school after him. You know, I mean, he yeah, came no, from no, no. that kind of thing. So Muir probably hated him, but <laughs> because he just represented something that he couldn't tolerate. But when you look at it, I mean, they both did so much. Uh, I mean, if, I if the proof truly is in the pudding, I, I don't know. Yeah. And the uh, the yin and yang of the two, you know, still were still appreciated the outdoors, which was which is so yeah. cool. I think, I, you know, I obviously there's a lot of romanticism associated with Muir and I'm hmm. uh, and I appreciate that. But uh, Pinchot in regards to managing the forest and stuff, he 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 was a, a, a just a great, great, uh, you know, forefather in regards to what he did for for managing this stuff it's pretty neat you know it when you yeah. it, it's it gets it gets glanced over a lot in regards to how important yeah. he was you know oh, yeah. gets the, there's a great gets the book out. yeah by uh tim egan uh it's called the big burn and it's about roosevelt and Pinchot and the creation of the U.S. Forest Service and how there was a fire that started in the West the size of Connecticut. And they were basically put to the test because nobody wanted the Forest Service and they said, we need it. And they were put to the test on that fire. And had it not gone well, we probably wouldn't have a U.S. Forest Service. So it's a really good yeah. book if you get a chance yeah, to look. I, I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. So. Well, Bob, I took you, I took you 16 minutes over what I said, but I think it was worth talking about. And I mean, we talked, we talked like no fishing, which is typical of this, (laughs) of this, of this podcast, but I hope that you, uh, I hope you um, enjoyed this. It was, I, I, I really felt like I learned a lot more about you and um, I hope it was, I hope it felt good for you too. It really did feel good. Thank you, Jordan. Like I said, I haven't had a lot of experience with this. I did a little bit on the Meat Eater podcast on some bird hunting, uh, but that's the, this is the only real exposure I've ever had to it. Is As much as we talked about social media, I'm probably uh, I'm not as uh, plugged in <laughs> as others may be on it, uh, but, uh, but I really did enjoy it, and, and I, hope, uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it too. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, so I will. So I'll end. I'll end with this one, uh, Bob, and then I'll let you go. So okay. I'm, I'm dealing with this. Uh, you know, I'm trying to find these, this wisdom of life as I get as I get a little bit older and trying to understand okay. what wilderness and transcendence and the stress of being outside and stuff like that. I did have this one question for you about the 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 in the seam nugget of wisdom as you've gotten older. Is there anything that you'd like to share that, like, or or even a conflict that you're dealing with as you get older in life? Um, 
What's going on? It's it's weird. Um, yeah, time's an interesting thing. I, I look back, I sit around with some of the other guides uh, that I know that are in the similar age group, and I look at what we've done and where we've come from and how it all started. Uh, and just kind of looking back a wisdom time is an interesting thing you know we're all getting a few gray hairs um i've tried to tell myself that i'm going to try to get a year better every year you know not necessarily i'm not going to be faster i'm not going to be stronger i get all that's going to happen but um i just try to get a little better at it and it's I, I also look at myself as being unbelievably lucky. I can't I don't have any idea how I fell ass backwards into this lifestyle, this um, profession, if you will. Um, but I've worked with amazing guides. I've had amazing guides work for me. Um, I don't know from a wisdom standpoint, but uh, the people end of it, has always been the best part. Uh, I've met some incredible people, guided them, guided with them. Um, foster the people relationships because the experience, you know, Rachel Finn, I keep going back to her, one of the best guides I know, uh, always has this great phrase and she says it all the time. She says, it's all about the hang, Bob. You know, it's the people you're spending this time with. Um, if you're, I don't care how the hunting or the fishing goes, uh, but if you're with good people, it really doesn't matter all that much. Um, a lot of my clients, it's maybe it's a coincidence, but a lot of my clients that I really enjoy that I've guided year after year after year, some of them coming up on 20 years, um, it's, you know, I, you can count on one hand sometimes the really good fishing days you had or the really good hunting days you had, but it doesn't really seem to matter all that much. And because you're with good company, uh, the people end of it's huge. And I didn't know that as, you know, when you're a young guide, it's all steam ahead and the, you know, you got to find that bigger fish and you're going to go farther and you're going to, and I did all that. Like I said, I've been lucky enough to guide in four states and on two continents. I've got to see a lot and do a lot, but it's the people, both good and bad, uh, that have made the difference. And that's, you know, I, I think that's that's, that's correlated to the age thing. It just is. It's you only have so much time and you just don't want to spend it with people you don't enjoy all that much. <laughs> so I try to spend more time with good people. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. It's great. All right. Well, cool. thanks. Thanks so much for giving this time up. Oh, and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. Documenting this is terrific. Thanks, Bob. Well, next year at this time, I'll be over in the Adirondacks again. Maybe we can get together. That would I would be really awesome. enjoy that. Yeah, maybe that, we could do a day in San Angeles. Yeah, I think that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, you. I will tell you, those pictures were driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> really, yeah yeah really driving yeah. me nuts well have a have a great holiday season bob thanks so much you too you too jordan thanks okay. again yeah thanks bye-bye so as i edit this and listen to it and i apologize for the audio my microphone wasn't working too good but it doesn't really matter the content 
in regards to what Bob talked about was just phenomenal. I mean, I, I'm, it's, there's so many good, there's just so much good stuff here. And, um, I gotta say, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that I know Bob. He mentioned Rachel Finn. I'm going to try real hard to get her on here. We'll see if we can do that. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed this podcast of In the Seam. Please check us out at jprossflyerods.com. You can look for Bob Duport also online or reach out to me and I'll get you in touch with him. Have a great day, everybody.